just as we worshiping towards the end there, um, we, you get to this place in worship where you just want to give more. Somehow, you're just like, God, I just want to give more. Um, and I was reminded of Romans 12, you know, the gospel has been so incredibly explained through chapters 1 to 11 and there's been the sense of how unsearchable your way is beyond tracing out like Lord the way that you save Jew and Gentile uh, the way that you justify by faith the way that that um, you reconcile and you take enemies and make them friends and the way that this is all just because of what Jesus has done. And uh, it's this exp beautiful explanation of the, the goodness of God in the gospel. First, starting with the fact that we don't deserve any of it, by the way. Like, we really don't deserve any of it. Like, each of us have gone our own way. We've all gone astray. There's no one good, not even one and yet he is so good and he saves us. But you get to chapter 12 and there's this beautiful line uh, that Paul writes. And he says, now in view of this mercy, in view of this, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Willingly step up onto the altar where the fire's burning and say, I want my life to now be the sacrifice. So we, we don't bring sacrifices anymore. Jesus was the sacrifice for sin. But we willingly still offer ourselves. And we don't do it in order to gain righteousness. But we do it from a place of, oh, my word, I've received mercy. I want to give myself. And I was thinking, you know, if I have to test myself and where I'm at with Jesus, a really good test is sometimes I'm in a place with the Lord where I just want to give more. Like I want to give more. If money comes my way, I want to give it. If, if um, joy comes my way or, or, or messages or the word of God, I just want to give it. I want to preach more. I want to, I want to worship. I, want, I just want to give myself, you know. If I've got something I can offer my home, like we spoke about the gathering. If I've got, you know, I just want to give it. I want to. It's spontaneous. I can't help it. It's not that hard. It might be a sacrifice, but I, I'm like so filled with the mercy of God, the goodness of God, I just want to give it. And then there's other times where you go, I'm subtly holding back. You know what I mean? You're living your life and you're subtly like guarding yourself and self-preserving and trying to keep things together and kind of, and, and when, you, when you've learned how to, let's call it do religion, you still give still give your tithe. You're like, okay, that's a non-negotiable. I'm returning it to the Lord. Of course, I'm going to do that. Okay, I'll give my tithe. But that sense of free will offerings, you know, that aren't demanded or required, that sense of, even though we, we sh our lives are demanded. I mean, we're slaves. We're, we belong to him. He's bought us at a price, the Bible says, and yet he wants us to give it willingly. And we do that when we see his mercy. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is your reasonable service. This is how you, how you worship and serve the Lord. You offer yourself. You get onto the altar. 
and no one can make you do that. I mean, amazing worship and amazing preaching can't actually make you do that. The Spirit of God might use that, but that in itself is not enough. And I just had such a sense of like this whole weekend, this underlying theme of what God's been doing is I think there's something in us welling up of going like, I want to give more. I just want to give more. What can I give? And that's really the real gospel. So many people have started with the first part of the gospel, which is His mercy. But He doesn't just save us for the sake of us. Now living with a ticket to heaven, but we're still living for ourselves, essentially. But at least we're going to heaven. Like that's the gospel being preached so much of the time. But the, the, the fullness of the gospel is now that you've received mercy, you belong to Him fully and completely. You're His. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel is in 2 Corinthians 5. I love this. Sorry, Greg, this is really helping me, so I'll, I'll just stay here for a bit. Thank you. <laughs> um, it says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. It says, He died for everyone, so that, so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. 2 Corinthians 5.15, I'm reading it again. He died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. He died for us. He was raised for us. But He was raised so that we would no longer live for ourselves. And in fact, that's one of the greatest salvations that can happen, is being saved from yourself your own lordship, all the idols you think are going to satisfy you. When He strips those things away, when He takes you through seasons of discipline, when He demands more of you, it's actually, yes, it's for His glory, but it's actually for your good as well. Because He's saving you. He's completing His salvation work, not just dying for your sin, not just saving you from hell, not just saving you from the wrath of God, but saving you from yourself. this morning, I, I want to share a little bit around this. So thank you, Jesus. I want to hopefully make this practical and just tell you, how do we do this? So I'm going to pray and then, Greg, you can go. But Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for all you've already done. Lord, we want to give you more. We just want to give you more. That salvation would, would come to to fruition and fullness with the people that are going, how can we step onto the altar? How can we spend our lives poured out, burnt out, in a good sense, loving you, Jesus, and loving what you love, loving what you love, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, bro. Wow. Cool. Amazing, eh? Yo, we just don't take the presence of God for granted, man. We don't deserve times like this in His presence where He just changes us. That was amazing. Yeah, but and yet he, he comes. You don't have to come, but you do, Lord. Thank you. So, um, 
It's been such a great weekend. Amazing to be here. Lilani is here with me, my beautiful wife. Greg is attached. <laughs> uh, so, you guys keep him on a short leash, eh? Sure. <laughs> I would too if I had such an amazing worship leader. Yeah, come on. What a legend. I just love the mix of this team. You got Hank from Pretoria on the bass. You got like former death metal guy on the drums. Now he's like life metal. Hey, life metal, I don't know if that's a thing, but let's make it a thing. You got Craig thinking he's young. <laughs> but your beard gives you away. No, he's arty, he's arty, he's creative. <laughs> I am. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> oh, man, it was just so great, hey. Oh, man, I loved that. I loved, I, that's the Church of Jesus Christ, hey. Everyone, every type and style of music coming together to worship the Lord. And oh, it was so beautiful. I just was just taking it all in. Um, laughing as well, but it was beautiful. <laughs> in a, yeah, so anyway. How do, we, how do we offer ourselves as living sacrifices? How do we love Him more, man? Um, if that's stirring in your heart, it's like there's, there's, there's a mission you can give your life to that you tend to drift from, but we need to come back to. And part of what I believe God's put on my life, and it's something like I could teach maybe, so, hopefully something you know, helpful this morning, but, but I want you to catch something. There's something God's put on my life through Andrew, through Russell, um, through men that have gone before me and discipled me. Um, that is, I want to call back Christians to know what they're supposed to be devoted to, to know what their mission is, to not have mission drift. You know, in the nonprofit charity world, you talk about mission drift. People start with a, a great idea and they want to do something. And then as the thing grows, as the organization grows, as as people are added, as money comes in, as good ideas get put on the table and people run after the good ideas, as all those things happen, mission drifts start to take place. And after 20 years, you go, whoa, are we even doing what we were first called to do, you know? And um, what I love about Josh Chen is I've come in here after not being around for three and a half years. And, and I can see that, yes, in some areas, mission drift wants to happen because there's been unbelievable growth. Thank you, Jesus, for the fruit. But I can also see that your leaders, Andrew and, and Russell and um, Kevin and all these guys that are leading are saying, we are not going to drift from our core values and what God has called us to. We're not going to drift. We're coming back, back on track, guys. doesn't matter who's added. doesn't matter what good ideas come. Let's get back on track. And so... Really, this morning, that it's about that. It's saying, old Josh Jenners, let's get back on track. It's saying, new Josh Jenners that are coming in, let's make sure we're not mission drifting. Um, let's make sure we know what we're giving our lives to. Because we want to be living sacrifices. Hopefully, something of that attracted you. If you're here and you're new and you've come in the last couple of months, hopefully you came in not just going, wow, this is really cool. Awesome coffee shop. Awesome friendship. Awesome people. Often that's the first thing that gets you. It's like, wow, my, my, my deep needs for love are, are being met. Thank you, Jesus. This is amazing. Finally, I found a church. 
But that has to translate into not just, wow, I found a place where I can get fed, but okay, Lord, now put me on mission for you. Now what am I supposed to give my life for? Because these guys are obviously giving their lives in a way that's touched me and healed me. Now how do I join that for the sake of multiplication? And so in Matthew 21, this is what I was just thinking about waking up this morning. Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of, the sell, of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Wow, that's quite a scripture to start with. Um, like this is that moment where your theology about what Jesus looks like and who he is is messed up in a really good way, in a really important way, where you go, oh, the God of the Old Testament, I can see where he disciplined, I can see where he got angry, but thankfully Jesus is always just reaching out and loving and kind and amazing and prostitute tax collector, they feel welcome, and, you, and we love to focus on those parts, you know? But then you read this. And you realize that Jesus comes to the temple on one day, by the way, before the Passover. Then he goes away and he sleeps on it for the night. He's like processing what he's just seen at the temple. If you read the story. And while processing what he's just seen at the temple, he thinks and he premeditates this. It's not like a, an act of kind of rage and discipline in the moment, righteous anger in the moment. He premeditates, he, he makes a whip. He sits there and makes a whip what the Bible says. It's not like, let's find a whip. No, no, he, he, he makes a whip. He, he takes this whip and he comes in with righteous anger and drives everyone out of the temple. I mean, you've got maybe hundreds of people selling and, and earning and money and, and now, and, but he's willing to come in there and kick over their tables and drive them out. And while he's doing this, there's a scripture in Isaiah, which is all about the Gentiles, the nations of the world being saved through Israel, that's burning in his heart. He's going, you guys have got serious mission drift because this temple, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is supposed to be a place where you welcome people to meet with the living God, where you make it as, as accessible as possible so that people can love and meet with God and know this God. And yet you guys have turned it into a place where, where you just get your needs met at the expense of them and the expense of, of Jesus' glory, in a sense, God's glory. Like, how dare you do this? And the Bible says, zeal for his house. His disciples think about this. They go, oh, that's kind of like that scripture, zeal for his house consumes him. So zeal for the house of God, being what it's supposed to be, consumes Jesus. He drives them out. They listen to him. I mean, that's what's astounding. They, they don't, in that moment, he actually accomplishes his mission. Like, he is Jesus. He is Lord of his church. And it, and it messes with our theology, like I say, because you're like, whoa, Jesus. But then it's very easy to say, well, thankfully, you were like that towards the religious Pharisees, right? Rather than going, well, I think Jesus might think very similar about many churches. And I just don't want to be one of those churches today called to be the house of God, called to be the place where people come into the presence of God. But it's become all about what can I get? How can I make this work for me? What can I, how can I consume? What can I take? And then I'll leave and go and live my life. 
but the church thankfully is there for me. No, I, that's a den of robbers. That's not a church. Because Jesus loves his house. He loves his church. He wants to live among his people. He's always wanted that. Um, so, what is the temple today, guys? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 17 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. That's what Jesus was doing. He's like willing to destroy if he has to because God's temple is sacred. It's supposed to be the place where people meet with God and experience and encounter His presence. And so um, the, the key here is you yourselves are God's temple. Now, I know that every one of us, our bodies are the temple of the, of the Spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 says in various places. We are the temple. Hey, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, right through the Old Testament, fire comes on the altar, fire comes on the, the temple and fills the temple. There's a sense that fire comes in one location, the glory of God in one location. But in the book of Acts, when people are baptized with the Spirit, where does fire come? On every single person's head. He's like, listen, it once was a temple. It's now every single one of you carriers of the glory of God. So by the way, like we said last night, your home can be a place filled with the presence of God because you're a carrier of God's presence. You don't have to have a building. Buildings are great. We try and make them as as beautiful as we can for you know to represent our values and when i walked in here my jaws falling off my face i'm like this place is so amazing oh my goodness lord protection protect me from coveting and jealousy and all those evil things lord and remind me what we said last night that actually it's the homes and so anyway getting carried away um <laughs> this place is average you should see edge <laughs> you should see edge means bathrooms i mean Edgemead venue, you know, you go into those bathrooms, you want to make your bed and sleep there and live there. It's so nice. Um, but this, this place is all right. So, um, but, but, hey, this, the, you know, homes. Okay, but that's last night's message, today's message. So the temple of God, yes, is every one of us, but the emphasis in the New Testament is we are the temple of God. We together, when coming together as the church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. He's writing to a local church. He's saying, you Corinthians, you're a local church. You're the temple of God on earth. And I think that's actually the greater emphasis in the New Testament is that we are the temple of God. Because together we can carry something of God and represent God and reflect God way better than we can alone. You know, 1 Peter 2, verse 4 says, You have come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built. Every one of you that's come into this church, if God's calling you here, it's not because he wants to meet your needs here it's because he wants to take you as a living stone build you into this place grow his temple fill it with the glory of god through your lives together chisel you cut you shape you as a living stone little rock go through whatever processes you need to and build you in to become 
the temple of God. Not just, oh, well, I don't, I don't know about this. I'm going to extract myself because by myself I'm the temple of God. So I'm sticking to YouTube church from now on. That seems to work better. It's like so many people are doing that and they're missing their calling to be the temple of God. Um, so this has been God's plan all along. Just a little reminder. He wants to dwell with people on earth. He wants to dwell from Adam in the garden. He wants to dwell with Adam and walk in the garden with him. Then later, and he walks with, with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in that same way. He meets with them. He walks with them. But then when Moses comes out of Egypt, um, he says, now one of the first things you need to do, this is part of my law, is you need to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle needs to always be set up in the very center of the camp because I want my presence to be in the center of the camp. I want a place where my people can meet with me. And, uh, and Moses says, if your presence is not with us, if you don't travel with us, God, like nothing will distinguish us from everything else that's out there. That's the thing about the temple of God. It has to be filled with the presence of God. Otherwise, it's just another club. It's just another society. It's just another way of people socializing and building community and having some sort of, you know, healthy fellowship or something like that, which is what the church has become in many places, just a religious form. It's a form, but there's no presence of God. There's no power. There's nothing there that's really showing, like after this morning, Kevin, you can see he's looking for where's the presence of God, where through prophetic words, through songs, all we're doing the whole time is going, we just want the presence of God. Because nothing else distinguishes us. We have to be a people and a temple um, of God's presence. David then, you know, eventually that, that tabernacle gets put into some obscure little Israelite town and, and the Israelites have, have veered away from proper worship and Saul has taken charge and he's going south and so the ark is stolen and, and David, when he starts coming to power, he goes, the first thing we need to do is we need to make sure the presence of God is in the center of our people. We need some sort of t tabernacle for him again. And so he sets up a tabernacle in Jerusalem. And when he brings the ark finally, and there's a whole story there, but when he brings the ark finally, that, that tabernacle in Jerusalem becomes the center of Israel's worship. And it actually becomes the place where all the nations that are traveling through Israel Israel's like the crossroads of the world and Jerusalem at the center of it, that everyone who would travel through would go, oh my goodness, there's 24-7 worship and singing and God's presence is there. And there's an ark that I think was actually uncovered. I mean, it wasn't even hidden with the glory of God burning between the cherubim on the mercy seat on the ark lid. I mean, it's like God's presence is restored. I'm just giving you a bit of history to show you that this is a big deal to God. He wants a temple. He wants a place to dwell in His people. He wants a house of prayer for all nations. That's not talking, by the way, about we're going to pray for the nations. It's talking about a place where all nations can be brought in to His house. A house of many rooms that welcomes people in where they live and meet and know God. And I mean, listen to David's heart in Psalm 132. I was reminded of this psalm this morning. So beautiful. This is David's heart when he says, we've got to get the presence of God back. He says, Lord, remember David and all his 
self-denial, or at least the psalmist writing about David. But it says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Wow, that's quite an interesting way of describing David, eh? Dying to live. Remember David and all his self-denial. He saw an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it we heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. His heart is like no one rest until the ark comes back to where it belongs. That's the most important thing. Because God wants to live and dwell in a temple. And, he's, and, and, and then uh, you've got Solomon's temple, which gets built, and that's beautiful and amazing. And uh, it, it, there's various things that happen with that temple. We're going to look at one of them now in the book of Haggai. But there's various things that happen there. But finally then, Jesus comes to earth, and he says, I'm now the temple on earth. Now Jesus is dwelling. Now he's the temple on earth, the presence of God on earth. And then when Jesus goes, he says, and now you, my church, will be the temple. Like we read, you now are the living stones. You now are the temple of God. You are now the place on earth where people will be able to come and worship and see my glory and minister to the Lord and minister to one another and minister to the world like you. It's now you. That's on you now. And that's the age that we're living in. And one day the church will disappear and there won't be a church anymore. Why? Because we won't have a need for any kind of temple anymore because we will dwell with the Lord. He'll dwell in our midst in that beautiful heavenly city. And that plan all along of God living with his people will come to full fruition. So this is the history of it, man. God is always looking for a place to dwell with his people. And he's now chosen that place to be his church. That's the time of history we're living in. This is your temple, Lord. We together are your temple. Okay. So this is a big deal to God. That's, uh, that, that was all just to say, God really cares about his house. He is zealous for his house. He is passionate about his house. If you had to say, what's God doing in heaven right now? What's he thinking about? What's his mind on? What's he dwelling on? What's he praying for? What's he consumed with? You get a vision of that in Revelation chapter 1, where John sees the flaming you know, fiery face of God, of Jesus shining as Jesus appears to him. But it says Jesus appears to him and he's standing in the midst of the lampstands. And the lampstands are the local churches. And his message is, I've got a message for my lampstands. And he speaks to each one intimately and carefully because he loves them. He knows what's going on. And you go, wow, this, this one with eyes like fire and a voice like rushing waters like what's he thinking about what's he looking at well he's just wanting to walk among his lampstand he's, he's focused on his lampstand he's focused on his bride on his body on his family these are all the words that he uses for his church it's he really loves it and if we are to love him then love what he loves if we are to love him then love what he loves that's what i'm saying here if you love me you better love and be kind to my wife you say, I like you, Ryan, but she's a bit frustrating and irritating. I don't really like her. And you start slandering her, mistreating her, getting rough with her. Oh, my goodness. 
Don't, don't you dare say you love me. You don't love me. You don't love me at all. That's, that's totally hypocritical. Love what I love, what I'm devoted to. You'll be devoted to that as well. Okay. So. I want to tell you a, a story from the book of Haggai. And we'll read a little portion of that soon. For 400 years, the people of God have rebelled against God. Finally, he sends them into exile. For those of you who know your Bible history, you'll remember that. It's the book of Kings, where the kings are constantly worshiping idols and lead, leading Israel astray. And God, for 400 years, wrestles with his people, wrestles with their hearts, wrestles with their devotion, and says, come on, stop committing adultery with these idols. You promised to me and... And it's, I mean, it's the most beautiful thing. I mean, it's sad, but it's beautiful when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and, his, and um, some of the minor prophets as well. Because God is wrestling and saying, please, it's not too late. Repent, repent. It's not too late. God's incredibly gracious. Don't mistake his patience for not caring. Some people do that. They're like, well, I'm getting away with it. So God obviously doesn't really care. No, no, he's being patient. He's tolerating it for a time. But because he is incredibly slow to anger, and he's incredibly merciful and gracious, but there will come a time where he says, that's it, no more. Now you're going into my discipline. And for 70 years, he disciplines them in the land of Babylon. You know the story, and it's, and it's terrible. It's wild. At first, people are dying. They're treated cruelly. They're slaves in a foreign land. They're weeping saying, oh, you remember the temple? I mean, they, they're, in a, they're in a horrible space at first. But then, through people like Daniel and Esther and all of these guys, the Jews start actually doing pretty well in Babylon, especially when, you know, Babylon gets defeated by some of the other kingdoms. They start doing pretty well, as Jewish people tend to do, financially, economically. They're doing well. And they finished their season of discipline. God always said, you can have 70 years, then I'm calling you back. Like, I'm always going to call you back. That's the amazing thing about God. He disciplines them, but he says, I've not forgotten you. I've not forgotten you. Can a mother forget a baby nursing at her breast? But even if a mother were to forget, I will not forget you because I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. Hey? That's the promise that comes to Israel. I have not forgotten you. You might be in a season of discipline. That you deserve, but I've not forgotten you. Are you with me? Okay. And so Cyrus is the chosen instrument of the Lord. He's the king of Persia who defeats Babylon. And he comes in, and, and I mean, it's incredible. Like Isaiah prophesied 200 years before that this guy named Cyrus from a kingdom which was not even a real kingdom in those days. 200 years before, he prophesies and says, this guy Cyrus is going to come, and he's the one that's going to set you free from the Babylonians. I mean, it's incredible. When you study biblical prophecy like that, you just go, oh, surely, God, you're in control of the nations and what's going on in history. It's all your history. It's all his story. You know what I mean? Like, you're God, and it's all for the sake of your people and for redemption and because you love your people. It's amazing. But Cyrus comes in, and, and God appears to Cyrus and basically says, I want you to send the people back to build the temple. Ezra 1 verse um, 1, let's pick it up there. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Isn't that amazing? God will use anything and anyone to make sure that people come back to their priority, their devotion, which is you build me a temple. You make sure there's a place where I can be worshipped and people can come and meet with the presence of God. So God tells Cyrus to do this. And so he says, any of his people, any Jews basically among you, may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, all of you, any of you, the whole nation if you want to, go, go build the temple. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locate, locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide for them with silver and gold and goods and livestock and free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. How amazing is this? This Gentile king. God says, you know, tell your whole kingdom to provide for this temple. And all the Israelites tell them they can go back and build the temple of God because God's going, this is my priority. For 70 years, you've been disciplined. There's been no temple. The temple's in ruins. It's completely destroyed. But that's not my main, that's not my goal. I don't want you to live like this from now on. And the problem is, and here's the, the sad thing, is that only 50,000 people out of millions return at first. And it's the priests, the ones who, like this is their job. This is the cream of the crop kind of Jewish people that's, and Israelites that still remember the Lord their God. Like only only a few return and actually go and do what God wants. And do you know why only a few return? Well, like I said, they had become pretty comfortable. They had become pretty successful in Babylon. Things had gone well for them economically by this time. And part of the reason for why things were doing well was Jeremiah 29, which is a scripture that people love to quote nowadays. And I want to just say... Can we be very careful about this scripture? We'll look at it in a moment. You know, I remember a time where Provence, that's one of the Josh Jen venues in Wellington. I remember a time where we walked in and we said, oh, there's some bunnies. Look how pretty those little bunnies are. That's so nice. We've got bunnies now in Wellington. Nice for the kids to look at. Then later on, I mean, give it a couple of months, you come back and you're like, they're everywhere. They're eating everything. They're destroying everything. And what starts out as, you know, a helpful doctrine maybe for a specific time ends up becoming something that's like out of control and that's like now destroying the, the garden and the house of God, you know. And so Jeremiah 29, I think, is one of those scriptures, to be honest. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. So now they're in, they're in captivity and Jeremiah is prophesying. He's saying, when you're in captivity, guys... Don't think you're getting out of there until 70 years is over. So you just settle there and start to do well there, okay? Jeremiah actually tells them to do this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel, to, the, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Amazing, eh? I carried them. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for the Lord, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so Christians today, all over the world, are going, great. Thank you for my license to build my business, because if my business in this city, you know, prospers, then the city will prosper, we will prosper, and hopefully the church will also prosper. But I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on whatever pursuit goes for the well-being, you know, builds the well-being of the city. And, and often, to be honest, the heart there is because then I'm going to live a really nice, comfortable life in Babylon. The problem is, after 70 years, when God says, it's done, that was like a short season, Jeremiah 29. It was a 70-year season in the history of the world that I was saying, you must do this. This doesn't apply anymore. What applies now is go back and build the house of God. Does that make sense? Go back. Only 50,000. The rest are like, uh, I'm still seeking the prosperity of the city and my lack of house. <laughs> okay? And so we've got to be careful of this. And here's the thing. So when they return, so these 50,000 return, slowly but surely more return later on. But they return and God says, now build my house. First things first. The most important thing you need to do is I want a place where people can meet with me. A house of prayer for all nations. Come and build my house. And this is where we pick up the story of Haggai. Because as they come back, they get started for a few years, for like two, three years, they do pretty well. But then they come into opposition. And things are difficult. And the surrounding people that are living in the land of Israel, they give them problems and issues. And so they start pulling back from the work because they start getting intimidated because it's hard. And the more they pull back from the work, the more now a famine starts to come onto Israel. So now they're struggling to eat. They're struggling to you know produce their crops and things they're just struggling things are not going well and for like i think it's about 13 years they neglect what god has sent them for they just get busy with trying to survive trying to build their own houses trying to plant their own crops and they and the whole time they're saying don't worry we'll get to it there will come a time where we will devote ourselves again to the house of god there will come a time where we will build the temple We'll get to it later. But right now, we, we, we need to just get through this tough season. That's what they're saying. And so God sends this guy named Haggai to prophesy and to say, you've got to see this through my perspective. Are you all with me? Okay, I've taken a bit long to get you. Haggai 1 verse 1 says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, of Shield, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Let's read from this. Through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? 
Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. He's saying, reconsider what's going on here, guys. No matter how much you try to build your own house, it's never enough. You're never satisfied. It never fulfills you. It's not quite working. And you keep saying, let's build our paneled houses, let's plant our crops, let's do it. But it's not working. It's not enough. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but you see, it turned out to be little. In other words, you planted, you did stuff, but no matter what you did, it wasn't working. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive, the oil, and whatever uh, the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God because of the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And so they obey, they get busy, they go back, and they start building, and they get back off their mission drift, back to the mission of God. But what's so incredible about this is just the sense of, Consider what's going on here, guys. You're saying, surely it's not time yet to build the house of God. No, it is always time to vote yourself to the house of God. It is always the right season. As long as there is anything of it lying in ruins, I mean, take a look at the world today. Take a look at the church of Jesus Christ around the world today. I don't think any of us would say it's like glorious and shining and beautiful and amazing and ready for Jesus to come back. Like, take a look at Christians and their lives and their devotion and their lack of it and their compromise. Take a look at this and go, is it time for you to be building your own house or is it time to be devoting yourselves to that to which Jesus is devoted to? Okay, so this is the stuff that that from young has taken hold of me and I'm trying to impart it and say, guys, this is why we exist on the planet. I know the Bible says seek first the kingdom, but unfortunately people don't know how to always appropriate that. It's like seek first the kingdom or maybe it's that, maybe it's this, maybe and different people tell you different things of the kingdom. The start of seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness is building the house of God. Very simple. The place where he wants to dwell and invite all the nations. So he says, no matter what you do, it's like your pockets have purse, has, has holes in them. Your purses have holes in them. You're trying to build your own house. You're trying to, to do what the world and the culture and businesses and good economics and, and, and most you know, people say about your family. You're trying to have this beautiful suburban life the Durbanville dream, the Pinehurst dream, the American dream, I don't know what it's called. You're trying to live this life, build your house, but no matter what you do, you, it keeps on like not being, an, even if you get successful, it's like, it's not actually fulfilling me. It's not actually that great. 
I'm just falling apart in other areas now. My purse just has holes in it. Well, what's the answer? Come prioritize yourself around that which Jesus prioritizes himself. The early believers, what happened? They filled with the Spirit. They just devoted to the fellowship. Devotion to the fellowship is what overflows. Devotion to meeting together in the temple and in homes. Devotion to just breaking bread together all the time and being equipped by teaching about Jesus. Just devotion to coming together to pray. They're devoted. That's what they live for. Nothing else matters in life. Everything else is just supposed to build towards that. That's what devotion is, by the way. Devotion is much more than priority. Priority is, well, I've got a list of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever. It's like, the, the, you know, I've got, it's first God and then it's, you know, my family, most people would say, my kids, my wife, uh -oh, you know, my church. Maybe my business first, maybe my church, I don't know. Like, there's this priority, this, you know, I always say devotion can be described best by surfers. Because if you want to look at someone who's devoted, go find a surfer and see how they've lived their lives. Every part of their life is built usually around surfing. Where they live, how their work works. You know, you go to Cape Town and there's people surfing all the time. You're like, what time is their work? What time? No, they have organized their work around what they're devoted to. You know what I mean? Things are going to shift around. Things are, you know, it, it's all... Their holidays, their recreation, where they go, what they buy, what they spend their money on, everything is around that. Now, that's actually a problem if that's you. I mean, you live in Durbanville. I don't know when last you saw the sea. Maybe as long ago as I did from Benoni. But like, or, or maybe a better description would be devotion is to my wife. I mean, I'm, you've got to be devoted to your wife. That's a good thing. To, that's maybe a better one. Where your wife doesn't want to be a priority. She doesn't want to be like, okay, well, I'll fit her in her place. I'll give her a lot. She wants to be part of everything. So devotion is, is like a pie chart with whatever you devoted to in the middle. Everything of the, uh, every other slice of the pie, the middle is what you're devoted to. And, and that thing fits into every part of your life. So I love my wife. I'm devoted to her. Well, I'm going to include her in everything. In, in all the choices we make and how we do things, I'm going to be considering her. I'm going to be phoning her, saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to be late. Can I help with anything? Can I get something? Is that okay? I'm devoted, so I'm including her all the time into every part of my life. That's how marriage works and is successful, right? You've got to be devoted. You can't do marriage without being in love and being devoted to one another. It's not going to work. Okay. Why did I say that? You've got to be devoted. I said that to earn brownie points. That's why I said it. Maybe later we can kiss. <laughs> hey? <laughs> Where am I? What's happening? Okay. <laughs> Getting distracted. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, so, but their answer, the people of God, their answer is, I'll get to it. Don't worry, I'll get to it, okay? <laughs> no, sorry. 
You've got to have a, a reference to Nacho. <laughs> You've been baptized? I'll get to it, okay? So the people are, are like that. Like, I'll get to it. I will one day. So they get saved, maybe as a teenager. They're passionate. They love Jesus. It's amazing. But then they have to go to university. And so they say, oh, well, I better just get through my studies. And uh, once I get through my studies, and I kind of enjoy college life and stuff like that, then, then I'm really going to be devoted. But now it's in my season for studies. And, okay, now I'm finished my studies. I get my qualification. Oh, but, ooh, I just met someone, and I think she's the one. Okay, okay, you know what? We just need to organize weddings, plan weddings. We need to have a nice courtship time. And, and I'm kind of going to just do that now. But, but you know what? Maybe when we get married, oh, we're going to be devoted to the house of God. Because I do want to live like that. Oh, now we're married. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Oh, she's pregnant. Okay, you know what? I'm going to get to it. But right now, it's a, it's a hectic season. Pregnancy is a hectic season. Now there's a new baby. Oh, my word. Like, this is, I'll, I'll, I, we will get to, the pre, to, to, you know, devoting our life to the house of God. And I want my kids to grow up like that. I think I do want them to grow up like that. But, but right now, it's difficult. It's colic. It's not sleeping. It's, a little, it's difficult, man. So, so now, surely, is not the season. Let me just focus on my house for a season, and then I'll get to God's house. Oh, but you know what? This little guy's growing up, and I'm telling you, he's, got, he's talented. Uh, he's talented, man. He, he, is, he is the next name a cricketer. I don't watch cricket. I don't. What? Okay, okay. Well, we're, we're old. Yeah, that's good. He's the next Jock Cullis. I remember him. I'm telling you. So, so, so I need to invest in that. And I know his games are on Saturdays and Sundays. And they, I know we've got to drive all over the country. But, but it's okay. We, we need to invest in that. Because the, but the season will come. When we just get through this, God, it must be the Lord's gift to us to give him such talent. I mean, that must be from the Lord. So, you know, he's got to be faithful with it, you know. And so do we. And so, but I'll get to it. I'll build his house at some point. Oh, but now he needs to go to university, and that's expensive. And so we need to, and the cycle just goes around and around. And the purse has holes in it, and it's never really satisfying. It's never really working. You're never actually getting to what God's called you to, and you need prophets and you need apostles. The modern-day version is apostles coming in. Who has distracted you from your undivided, pure devotion to Jesus? Who has bewitched you? Who has, who has gotten hold of your attention? I promised you to one person, Jesus, as a pure bride. Like, why are you not walking down the aisles with eyes for only Him, devoted to what He's devoted to? Come on, people of God. And I go to church every now and then. It's, it's kind of like a den of robbers because it's all, we're all there to just get what we can, when we can, and then, but it's okay. That's what the modern church looks like, and, and I do believe the true gospel. I know about the good doctrine. That's okay, but I'll get to it. And one day you get to heaven and you go, but look, look at all the, the trophies and the accolades that my son, my, my little next Jock Cullis has got. Look at this. Amazing. And God looks and he goes, well, that's all he's going to have. That's it. There's no rewards. There's nothing of eternal value. 
spent it on this life. You built your house, your life, this life. These are choices we've got to make. How am I going to live? How am I going to bring up my kids? What values? I'm, I'm not against sport, but we have chosen to make sure that our kids live for the purposes of God, that they love His house. And we've told them time and time again, I'm sorry you can't do that. I'm sorry that extramural, you can't do that. I'm sorry this, I'm sorry that. I'm sorry we can't get into that because of as the games are on Sundays or because we don't actually have money because that's not what we're living for. Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, 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 but you know what? They're here in Cape Town. They're staying with different friends. They're, they're, they're loving Jesus. They're, they're loving His house. They built, their whole life is built around being parts of worship teams and going to youth and traveling with us and ministry all over and prayer meetings and times of beholding the Lord, you know, where we worship. I mean, their whole life is built around that. And God's giving them amazing friendship. And He gives them and He blesses them with what they need when they need it. But I look at, at our kids and our life and I just go, thank you, Jesus, for that we haven't mission drifted. Thank you, Jesus, for people like Andrew that have led us well and not led us drift towards building for my life and my house. So that one day when we get there, man, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is, it's eternal stuff that you've invested in. Well done. Now, I don't know. I, I pray and I trust that my kids will carry on on that trajectory. I don't have control of that, but I do want to make sure with everything we have that they value what's really valuable, that they're devoted to what Jesus is devoted to. And if that means sacrifice, then I'm not just going to sing, I'll be a living sacrifice. I'm not just going to read it. I'm going to say, God, I want to be a living sacrifice in light of your mercy. Nothing else matters. And for all eternity, he can play cricket and rugby and become incredible in his glorified new body and it's going to be amazing because this life is very short anyway consider what's really going on consider what's really happening is it time for you to be building your panel houses guys i know for many of you you've lived your life like that you know this all i'm saying to you guys is don't forget I know for many that you are new. You've come from other places, maybe other churches, maybe, maybe places where they haven't preached a full gospel, a gospel that says, listen, He died for you so that now you can live for Him with all that you are and be saved not only from hell and wrath and sin, but from yourself and living for yourself. There's no other gospel. I'm going to leave it there. I think that's what God wants to say this morning and call us to. Thank you, Jesus. Could we close our eyes?